0: Here we go. I am the father of My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am. <laughs> the second unit report I got it. That's a good start. <laughs> uh. Welcome to the Post Credit Pod. I am senior entertainment reporter for The Observer, Brandon Katz. With me, as always, Eric Italiano, senior editor at Bro Bible. Today, We are tackling Dunkirk in a part of our continued Christopher Nolan deep dive. We've hit Interstellar. We've hit Inception. We hit the Dark Knight. We hit the Prestige. So we're really going all in on the kind of Nolan stock, even with uh, Tenet floundering here in America. But before we get to that, I mean, Eric, there's a lot of very interesting things going on in the comic book movie world, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to give you a heads up that when I cut this pod, I'm going to put that Dunkirk ticking sound throughout the entire podcast.
0: I love that. I love that already. This is why he's a great producer, folks. In the future, if you ever want to work with a good producer, call Eric. But in the meantime, before you get to the ticking clock, there's really kind of a ticking clock on Marvel craziness at the moment, and specifically the announcement that Jamie Foxx will be reprising his role of Electro, which first appeared in Adam Garfield's Andrew Garfield, whatever that guy's name is, The Amazing Spider-Man 2 from 2014. He's going to reprise that role in the third upcoming Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. What the fuck?
1: It's surprising that it's coming out now, right? Oh, yeah. Marvel's been so backed up... uh, by the time we get their next film, which is going to be in May, it's going to maybe. be maybe it's going to be close to two years since Spider-Man: Far From Home, which was the last oh, wow. MCU film we've gotten. Um, it speaks so
0: up it, on you how much time has passed,
1: right? So I think it speaks to how important the Spider-Man character is that he was the last character we saw. And yes, they have a few films planned between now and then, but that they're already, you know, planning the story Uh, from what I've read, I think they're gonna start filming this fall.
0: I think so, yeah.
1: Which, you know, is a step forward. So it's nice to see that the MCU, despite being in this rare holding pattern, are still moving things forward piece by piece.
0: And it was smart of them to announce something so splashy and buzz generating that it kind of took over the news cycle for a few days. You know, these studios and these brands and these franchises, they're built on how engaged we are as fans. So if you can excite people by just a news announcement, that's impressive. And if you can do so in the middle of a pandemic when you are on this holding pattern, that's doubly so. But I think the biggest takeaway and the most important thing we really have to focus on with this news, this essentially confirms that Marvel is leaning into this multiverse theory in which canon from previous iterations and franchises may be kind of folded into the MCU. Like how much
1: we expect how much do we expect them to unleash the multiverse in this film, right? Like I feel like it's going to be step 1. I don't think that they're going to full blown give us three Spider-Man In one movie quite yet but I do think just as the DCEU is doing it's showing that you know Brandon it's like the same thing in in football right every few years there's a new style of play that takes the league by storm and moves the league forward you've got Patrick Mahomes and what he's doing you've got Lamar Jackson and what he's doing and what what they're really doing in a grander scheme is they're advancing the game to its next stage, and that's sort of what we're seeing with comic book film. They've done it all you know there's there, there are only so many third acts that could end with a giant <laughs> blue beam tearing a hole in in the sky. They've got to bring something new um, And the perfect way to do that is through multiversal, which is not a word, but I use that word on this podcast it works. Time because it should be, and it's a good word. That is the ultimate storytelling freebie, right? It, it it pretty much gives them free reign to use any characters played by any actor in any timeline, in any universe, world. So I think it's super, super exciting sign for where comic book film is going from here. Now, that said, do I think Jamie Foxx's Electro is the character that I would have wanted to see.
0: Here we go. Let's get down to the meat and potatoes. Right
1: now. So, and I kind of feel the same way about Jake Gyllenhaal playing Mysterio, right? Jamie Foxx is an Academy award winning dude. So, like, if you're going to bring him back into the fold, I feel like bringing him back as Electro is kind of a waste. I would definitely like to see him, uh, especially that version, which, as he since said, uh, is going to be changed he's not going to be blue and glowing as he was in, in the last time, but i guess i'm I guess I'm just bummed that he's going back to a character that we've seen him play where I would love to see Jamie Fox take on something bigger.
0: We're on the same page because Marvel introducing the unlimited potential and possibilities of the multiverse is very exciting. It is a new direction of storytelling. It opens up avenues that weren't previously conceived to be feasible, and that's also exciting. But for the launching pad of that whole entire shift to be Jamie Foxx's Electro, the worst written character in a terrible Spider-Man movie from six years ago, I just don't get the strategy behind that particular move.
1: I mean, do we think he's going to be the villain or that he's going to be like a side character who pops up in the third act? Like the tearing in the dimensional hole will be the problem that needs to be solved during the course of the film, right? They don't solve it. And then at the end, he busts through. Or do you think he's going to be in it from the jump and factor into not just this film, but the films going forward?
0: Yeah, I don't know how significantly he is going to factor into this movie, but I will say two things. Number one, if they're bringing back Electro, and we know how much of a hard-on Sony has had for the Sinister Six for about a decade now, absolutely I think Jamie Foxx's Electro is being set up to join, start, participate in a Sinister Sinister Six versus Spider-Man adventure at some point in the near-ish future. That's number one. So whatever role that takes. What?
1: I would be on board. Yeah.
0: As long as they don't bring back um, a few of the clownish iterations from the amazing Spider-Man and it's oh, like, just
1: yeah. more okay. new. What's his name? Dane, Dane, DeHaan's DeHaan. goblin. He's I mean. a good
0: actor, but I, yeah, the hobgoblin is, is oh. not. He, he's
1: it. like a store brand. Paul Dano. Let's be real here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's, that's the most amazing comparison I think we've ever made on this podcast. Everybody, write that down. Storebred, Paul Dano. I love that. Uh, and my second point: Jamie Foxx, right after the news dropped, posted on Instagram a Spider-Verse picture with multiple Spider people and then deleted it later, which clearly means someone at Marvel got on his case. Now, does that hint at a larger Spider-Versian endeavor? I don't know. Would I see, be surprised if toby mcguire and andrew garfield make some sort of appearance whether that's via cameo or just a simply reference to another iteration of spider-man i wouldn't be surprised about that and they set that up for like the other big kind of huge crossover that is like a billion plus at the box office i don't
1: well that's a great point if they were to build up to a spider-man crossover film like if that's their end game that movie would do ridiculous money because it would be a, I mean, I've said that I think Spider-Man is probably the third m- most famous hero behind Bat and Superman.
0: Yeah, and he's, um, and he's Marvel's best-selling character across all mediums for for literally since the fifties or whatever and, he was created.
1: And it's you're being sold on concept, right? Like the idea of
0: seeing three Spider-Men at once would be huge. Um, I mean, look how I, successful Spider-Verse was, and that wasn't even established right. Spider-Men.
1: Now, I don't know how they involve Electro and not Garfield's Spider-Man. I feel like if we're getting one, then at the very least, we're going to get a hint at both of them. I can't imagine that whatever wormhole Jamie Foxx goes through, that Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man is not hot on his tail. You know, He's passing through a door and there's characters on both sides of that door. So you got to imagine that we're going to be filled in on who he's running from, who's chasing him, who's trying to stop him, etc. It's to the point now where you wonder if this has always been their plan or if it's something that they have that now they saw DC finally beating them to the punch in one regard, uh, if this was a pivot.
0: I can't speak to whether or not the Spider-Man, Electro, Jamie Foxx plan has always been in place, but the fact is they announced Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness in July 2019. They clearly had a plan involving the multiverse and WandaVision and all that for months and probably years prior. I I don't think this is a case of one studio copying the other or copying each other. I just think it's this is where we were heading. Just as if... Similar to how Kevin Feige is absolutely a genius for bringing the concept of a shared universe to the big screen, I also still think it was inevitable. If it wasn't Feige, it would have been someone else, and this is the next iteration of that. Kind of what you said before. Like, we've done everything, so what's next?
1: Exactly, exactly. The the art form is being moved forward to its next stage.
0: Now, before we touch on how both DC and Marvel are now evolving in the same direction. I do wanna just quickly say like, you know, post-credits like fade up from black, Peter Parker, Tom Holland version staring over like, the rubble and like, you know, there's cop cars arresting the bad guys. And he's like, ah, another mission, you know, accomplished in the background, in the alley, you hear, hey kid, that was some nice web slinging, like cut to Andrew Garfield, fade to black, like next movie. Uh It's gonna be something like that.
1: And that's where I think that they're going to head. I know it sounds like ridiculous when you first hear it, but that totally strikes me as where they're going with this. How else do you tell a multiversal Spider-Man story and not have Spider-Man share scenes?
0: Garfield and Maguire are going to pop up at some point in the next five years. But uh, to to speak to the general flow of Hollywood right now, we've got DC going all in on the multiverse with multiple Batman. Now we've got Uh, Marvel, we have basically three projects in Marvel confirmed to be multiversal, and that is WandaVision, Doctor Strange, and now some iteration of Spider-Man. I guess I'm just a little disappointed in this direction, because I thought this was a way for rival comic book franchises to stand apart from one another. I'm someone who definitely thinks the homogenization of big screen content is like a very real phenomenon over the last decade, and that we're really just getting different versions of the same blockbuster story told over and over. And this is really cool, the multiverse theory, and it's mold breaking, and and I'm very excited for it, but it brings DC and Marvel more in line with each other, in my opinion.
1: Well, uh, I hear what you're saying, but I'm gonna toss out this point. I don't think that they're gonna approach it in the same way, whereas I think the MCU's multiverse is gonna factor into the main plot. I think the DCEU is going to use it as a tool to tell Elseworld-type stories. Not Joker before. or the
0: Batman.
1: So they're really just using it as an excuse to be able to make character-driven pieces about massive characters.
0: But now we have so many Batman in the Flash and stuff.
1: Right. So and, and I get that. But I think that multiverse is going to be more present in the MCU's actual overarching plot. Whereas in the DCEU, I just think that they're going to wield it when they need to, depending on what story they want to tell.
0: That's fair. I mean, I would like that.
1: What we've heard uh, about the Flash, the Batman's thing isn't going to be something that's a part of it going forward. It sounds like Ben is going to pop up, do his scenes, and then that'll be it.
0: But Michael Keaton will stay in that Nick Fury role, reportedly. Correct. I already know the answer to this question. But which trifecta are you most excited to see? The Batmans in DC or the Spider-Mans eventually in Marvel?
1: Uh, I think it depends on how they're used. If we have three all web slinging and like fighting a common good in a third act fight scene, like, I mean, come on. Even as a Batman guy.
0: Yeah, I was going to say you're the biggest Batman guy I know. I thought that was a slam dunk.
1: Well, because, the ba- because Keaton, as you're saying, isn't... Do- doesn't sound like he's going to be a on, hand hands-on Batman, right? I'm not even sure if Keaton's Batman and Ben's Batman are going to cross paths. At this I
0: point. hope they do. I hope they share at least one scene together.
1: Same, same. But I'm not convinced. So with that said, assuming the Spider-Men do more than just chat and, like, team up and fight side by side, then that's what I have to go with.
0: It's going to be pretty hilarious when, like, the more experienced Spider-Mans are like shaking their head at Tom Holland's rookie kind of mistakes. Even though he's been in it for a little bit now, he's still going to be like, oh, wow, you guys do this? And then i like, he's yeah, get teenager, with it. You know? yeah. These other guys, you know. he'll be pushing four. I mean, he'll be 40 in these movies. He'll be Peter B. Parker, basically. Exactly, exactly. All right, so hopping from kind of one multiversal universe to another, Marvel. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is obviously at some point going to reintroduce Deadpool, Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool, which they acquired when they got when Disney bought Fox. There's too much money to be made for them not to. And recent rumors, unconfirmed, but from, from pretty decent sources online, have said that Marvel is reportedly negotiating the largest contract of any MCU actor with Ryan Reynolds because they want him to appear across the spectrum, solo films, cameos, crossovers. What do we make of that? Because on one hand, I'm excited that his, they've said previously, his solo movies will still be R-rated. But if he's going to appear in the most projects, that means he's mostly going to exist in a kind of watered down PG-13 universe. So I'm a little worried about that.
1: So I think, I think first and foremost, it speaks to the star power of Ryan Reynolds. Um, this is a guy who, as far as I, I could tell has started draw
0: structure wait that wasn't the question
1: (laughs) dude i met him last year at the premiere for uh six underground and my biggest takeaway was that like wow movie stars really look like that like i couldn't (laughs) believe how movie star esque that he looked and then the next thing that, that i thought was that job looks absolutely exhausting like this man had to be on his game yep 100% 100% of the time. He's getting dragged by people every which way, answering questions, being charming. Constantly performing. Exactly. Always on. Um, But he is one of the only movie stars who could get an original IP blockbuster launched, right? They're making a sequel to The Hitman's Bodyguard.
0: What? I know. I, I literally talked about that today. It's just... You know they're riding that Deadpool crest of popularity.
1: Um, Free Guy, which was supposed to come out this summer, which just released its new trailer today, uh, is still pretending it's going to come out this year. I don't believe it. No, but that looks like a very that looks like the most expensive original IP film I've seen in years.
0: Video game fans, man. If they don't, if they don't want to show up for crappy things like War, Warcraft and Assassin's Creed, which I don't play them because they're terrible, I wonder if they'll show up for like an original one that still has the makings and trappings of video games. Exactly.
1: And then there's um, Red Notice, which I guess I, I get Stars the Rock as well, but and he's just, right. But he's just as big of a piece of that. So this is a guy who is, I argue, one of the most bankable A-listers on earth right now. I think that it speaks to not so much that they want Deadpool, that they want Reynolds. That's what I think the key is here.
0: I think Reynolds' brand is bigger than necessarily his profitability because outside of Deadpool, he has struggled to launch some box office successes. And there was there was a time right around RIPD where we thought like, is this the end of Ryan Reynolds as a movie star? And he bounced back because he's talented and he had passion for the Deadpool project, which was really smart. And they kind of... Reintroduce the superhero genre in a new way, but I, I don't know necessarily if he's like the most massive box office star outside of you that. It
1: strikes me, I can't see a lot of other guys out there selling Free Guy.
0: Well, let's see if it even performs well.
1: Yeah, I,
0: I don't know if that's going to be a, a hit, even though I'm intrigued. I like the first okay. trailer more than I like this most recent one.
1: My larger point is I just think it speaks more to him than the Deadpool character. Um, now that said, I do share your concerns in the structure in which they seem to want him to want to bring him back does seem to be a watered down version um, based on, and you and I talked about this off air. So we should take what he says with a grain of salt, but based on what the Deadpool creator, what is it, Rob Liefeld? Based on his tone, it doesn't seem like we're ever going to get a third Deadpool. Um, in I the same wrong about that. In the same vein of the first two. You think that the MCU would give us an R-rated Deadpool?
0: I, I think the MCU will eventually give us an R-rated Deadpool 3. I think there's way too much money to be made. Uh, I think even though there probably has been some behind-the-scenes struggles in terms of how to introduce him properly into the MCU. The fact is, they have said previously that they will keep solo adventures R-rated. And again, it's just about the almighty dollar. They know that that's a $700 million worldwide blockbuster in the bank.
1: I find it strange that you think he, that you say that they've had a hard time finding a way to work him in, because I feel like Deadpool's fourth wall thing is the ultimate cheat code, right? He could look directly into the camera and say, yep, I'm here now. Deal with it. You know, they have that sort of out where regardless of how clunky the storytelling mechanics of his inclusion may be, they've got that get out of jail free card where he could just explain it in a joke and they could move on. It that will
0: be very funny for him to be in his first PG-13 appearance and attempt to curse and just be met with the bleep sound and be like, what the hell was that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: See, that's a great idea. So, But
0: apparently, the, this was like the behind-the-scenes drama um, that's been reported over the last years, that they were struggling conceptually with how to make it make sense. Like, where's Deadpool been? Like, how is he going to be tra- uh, traversing R-rated in PG-13? Like, I think they can absolutely do it. I think you can do anything with, with solid writing and any concept can work if you have good writers. Do but I know thus far, it's been do, a little hit and Do mess.
1: you think the newfound commitment to the multiverse has anything to do with them trying to backdoor a way for him in?
0: I don't know. See, it's either going to be multiverse or it's going to be with however they introduce mutants, you know? So I'm wondering, is that all going to be tied into one? Is it going to be WandaVision creates the the mutants with some type of House of M connection? I'm very curious as to what their plan is.
1: All right, so let's play a quick game. Do you think Deadpool will appear in the MCU in Phase 4? Yes. Okay. Do you think, not counting a post-credit stinger... Do you think that debut will be in his own film, or will it be in someone else's film
0: that's a great question. I think probably someone else's film before he gets his own solo movie within that the which
1: movie do you think that would be Spider-Man,
0: I think great right? I know, but I, I just now I have not thought about that at all, which makes it a good question, but now just immediately when you ask that i really want to see him in a hilarious post credits like blade scene where he blades like who the fuck is this guy and he's just like
1: hey, ha vampires
0: <laughs> i just think is there's blade, something funny is blade about that
1: case 4
0: uh, i'm pretty sure it is yeah i i know they don't have any production plans as of right now so it's definitely down the line but right. you know they announced it at the last um comic-con when that when that was still a thing in real life yeah and so i believe that means it's phase four
1: you know what about uh ant-man 3
0: i mean that works there
1: are there are rumors i mean well no there's not rumors it's been confirmed that kang is gonna appear you and i have talked on on the pod how kang links directly to the fantastic four i guess the point is that they're about to open the lid off this thing right between Between Ant-Man 3 and WandaVision and Doctor Strange and Spider-Man, there are multiple ways in which they could work Deadpool in
0: now. Now that you've kind of laid it all out in that way, I'm starting to think more and more this has been a long-running plan because they're opening up the multiverse and connecting Disney Plus series at the same relative time that they got blockbuster properties back from Fox, maybe this has been in the works for a lot longer than we might initially realize. That is a kind of multi-layered, multi-pronged, huge expansion of the franchise. Yeah,
1: they're unleashing the one story device that could allow them to bring in the X-Men and the Fantastic Four and Deadpool. And they're doing so across multiple projects.
0: And just following up on the momentum of Avengers Endgame, it's like, oh, how how does HBO survive without Game of Thrones? It's kind of a similar uh, storytelling mud pit that they're in right now, bidding adieu to many of the fan favorite characters, having to soft remix and reboot their own franchise. So yeah, I mean, all these things coming together at once. Coincidence? I think not.
1: Right. So Deadpool, phase four.
0: Heard it here first, even though you definitely didn't all right well to to move on from there and continue our christopher nolan deep dive you and i re dunkirk his 2017 world war ii blockbuster oscar nominated across the board the call went out we have to go to dunkirk ready on the stern line what are you doing you know where we're going into war george i'll be useful sir He's on me. I'm on him. Now, this is a movie that I have argued is, in my opinion, the most memorable film of 2017. Most memorable, which I think is a very specific connotation. Upon rewatch, though... I I think I really kind of reached a a definitive conclusion and that is this movie is spectacular on your first viewing, but then maybe a bit grating upon rewatching. And that doesn't take away from the initial wow factor, but I think the mechanics of the movie are far more noticeable in subsequent rewatches. Kind of like, you know, the NFL season after the wildcat offense was introduced. So it's like the novelty is worn off. I still was really blown away by the craftsmanship. I still really enjoyed certain set pieces, but of course it was not the same experience as seeing it in IMAX, you know, surround sound, Dolby Atmos.
1: You know, you name check the mechanics. Uh, I, I think despite the fact that this is a largely like rainy and gray film, this may be his most beautifully shot film. Yeah. I just want to put that out there that there are a lot of its bones are very strong. Um, you know, of course, it's got a great score from our boy Hans. Always um, oh, killing it. I'm going to butcher this probably, but the DP, Hoyt Van Hoytema, crushes it. There are some beautiful shots in
0: this. Also, Oscar nominated for the, his right. work on this
1: film. But I think the most fascinating, the most fascinating thing that I found upon rewatching it this time was rewatching it because I've since seen 1917. And I think it's hard
0: to like not connect both those films in terms of the greater pop culture conversation.
1: For sure. Now, I find that they're all that they're sort of the inverse of themselves because whereas 1917 was this super micro story, right? You're with one character who's got one goal and it's one shot, quote unquote, <laughs> yeah. one shot. In this, there's no characters, there's no plot. Yep. And you're so discombobulated, which I think is on purpose, right? Yeah. Um, You wrote here in our notes, is the whole, everything he's doing in this film, is it a gimmick or is it clever? And And I think it's both. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's totally fair to say both. Well, it is a gimmick, no doubt. The timeline thing is Nolan at his worst, right? Like he's telling a World War II film and yet he still can't resist the urge to fuck with the timelines, which I find almost offensive.
0: So know? what he has said, and this makes it slightly better, but I still yeah. ultimately think it's, it's needless, end of the day, he said the evacuation of Dunkirk took place on so many different fronts that it was such a different experience. So there's the soldiers on the beach. Some of them were stranded there for as many as seven days. So they've got, got the
1: mole rest- that lasts one week. That's on the beach. And then right. they've got, uh, I forget what they call it, but they've got the channel, yeah, which is the boat, and that's one day. And, and
0: he, he and his actually wife, who's also his producing partner – took that that boat trip as w- one did in in that uh that year and he said it took them 19 hours due to sea conditions wow so, and then he said um when the british airplanes would would launch in that distance they would go out with an hour of fuel so he said the reason he wanted to kind of discombobulate the timeline is because it reflected the real participants temporal experience with that harrowing journey. And I get that and I think it makes it slightly better, but I also shouldn't need a a history lesson and a really, really passionate explanation to make something work in a film on its own. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, especially when you're talking about delicate historical facts. Like this is the battle of Dunkirk. Like this is one of the pivotal World War II moments. We don't need Nolan's fuckery right now. <laughs> um, we just don't need it. But that said, I do think that the way that both the timeline and the lack of classic characters and acts and plots and the general silence of the film is an effective way to both disorient us the same way we would be if we were in war, right? Like, Yeah. I feel like my head would be spinning. And that is sort of what this film gives you. And it also amplifies the actual horrors of war. Because you're not consumed with like your hero getting home safe, you're almost as if you're one of the guys on this trip, right? And so to put a bow on it, while I do find a lot of what he does in this film to be a blatant gimmick, its intended effect worked on me because this, this film has you feeling like no other war film I've ever seen, you use a great word for it. It's grading, right? And that's what war probably is like. You're probably like, fuck this shit. I've had enough. I want to go home. Turn it off. But but you can't do that in war. And you can't do that in this film either.
0: I can't remember who said it, but it was a famous film critic who essentially said you judge films on two criteria. Like number one, Did it move you personally? And number two, does the film fulfill its intention? And in that regard, we can argue whether or not Christopher Nolan's time fuckery works within the story, but in terms of what his intention is, which is building tension and eliciting anxiety and fear from your audience, I would say it absolutely succeeds in what it sets out to do. So. kind of unpackaging everything we've just said it's clear that dunkirk is a specific type of movie it essentially has no characters there's very little dialogue and instead it's about the plot construction and visceral experience as a film fan eric which do you prefer do you prefer boundary pushing newness like dunkirk which is trying to be different than all the other movies out there or do you prefer a more traditional story executed well
1: well, I mean, he did both and Interstellar, right?
0: I agree with that. Yes. So,
1: so if I could have a choice, I'd choose both. This is probably his least rewatchable film. I will probably not watch this film again for years, years. And so I think that has to do with its lack of traditional characters and arcs um, while I, won't, while I don't mind a film causing me to feel the way that this one does, anxious, stressed, like your skin is crawling. I don't want to feel that way for no reason, right? right. So it's like, even though I go through all of this, I don't feel as though I've been rewarded with a, with a full story arc. It is not an effective movie, but it is an effective depiction of, to the best that you and I, of what it would feel like to be there. That's what I think it succeeds at most. It is a, it puts you in the moment of what Dunkirk was like, more so than a traditional one, two, three act film could have.
0: Right, I I would say it is an effective movie. Uh, I probably prefer pound for pound, traditional characters and, and arcs like that. It's probably one of the reasons I still love Lost, even though it had such a terrible plot, Concentrated ending. But here's something that I've had to break in terms of force of habit. I have long considered rewatchability probably my number one criteria in grading how much I like a movie. And I don't necessarily think that's fair because, like we said before, it doesn't necessarily always take into account intention by the filmmaker and what the movie sets out to do. And in terms of film going experiences, this is one of the most gut-wrenching, involved, engaged, and emotionally heightened film-going experiences I've had in the last five years. And just because the movie doesn't have great rewatchability for all of the very fair reasons you just mentioned, I- I'm starting to think we can't hold that against them necessarily when it's not designed to be that type of film. It's, it's a habit I'm trying to break myself and saying, you know, like 12 Years a Slave is not a, a movie with great rewatchability, but that doesn't mean it isn't great.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's a good point, right? But when we talked about Inception, we said how its impact uh, wears away with each watch, right? Yeah. But even still, when you watch that, you find new things or something you like more than you did the first time. With Dunkirk, I found the entire experience as a whole to just be more of a grind than it ever was. Um I don't think there are any value there because of the lack of characters and plot lines. There's no real value in the rewatch. And I think that's a huge indictment of, of the film itself. Like, yes, I get that world war II is not something that people want to relive a lot.
0: Real barrel of laughs, that one.
1: Exactly. Exactly. But tons of war films are rewatchable as hell. You know, so I don't think that...
0: But were they as impactful in your first viewing as as Dunkirk might have been, which is like a sledgehammer type experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not fair because probably the definitive war film of our lifetimes, right, is Private Ryan, which I never got to see in theaters, so I can't really compare it. Uh, but probably I- a
0: good thing for our long-term mental health since you and I would have been like five or six when that came out.
1: Okay, right, right. I had put this in my top five films by by him uh, before I rewatched. And my list has changed drastically since. Um, This lost a lot of weight with me. One of my biggest indictments of any film is if I check my phone to see what time it is and and how much time is left, you're in deep shit.
0: You already lost it.
1: And I think that's the only one of Nolan's films that I feel that way about.
0: I think that's fair. All right, well, then that's a good segue into our awards and categories, which help us kind of break down the film to more nitty-gritty details. To start off, the real MVP award of Dunkirk. To me, this one, especially because there aren't real characters in this, this one was very obvious, and I went with Christopher Nolan and editor Lee Smith. And I went with them because in an era where film fans are so jaded and we're so bombarded with content from like every different angle and platform delivering something that does feel fresh and new and different and unique is increasingly different. I think our complaints about rewatchability are fair. I think taking into account intention and that first experience are also fair. But at the end of the day, Nolan accomplishes what he sets out to do with Dunkirk and proves himself in the process to be a master tactician and craftsman, whether or not it is always an enjoyable watch. So for that reason alone, him and editor Lee Smith kind of putting together this, this puzzle piece mystery of a war film deserve a lot of credit for making it make sense.
1: Now, do you think he, he made this because he truly wanted to or because as you've pointed out on this podcast, he wanted that award season rep? You know, he has been putting in the work for 20 years is thought of as one of the best of our time and yet had still not gotten the award spotlight that most of us feel he should have. So what? how much weight do you put in that?
0: It's definitely a perception-altering film in the fact that the critical consensus and industry opinion of him moved from, wow, what an amazing populist blockbuster filmmaker to, you know, wow, what a serious filmmaker – no coincidence that he scored his first Best Director Oscar nomination for Dunkirk, a a quote-unquote like World War II heavy film that the Academy would love. But at the same time and in the same vein that Steven Spielberg Spielberg is a Jewish filmmaker who made uh, Schindler's List with a very personal connection, I believe as a British filmmaker, he probably had a very personal connection to the events of Dunkirk as well. So I bet it was both.
1: Yeah. Okay. That was great. All right. So for mine, I'm going with the Allied powers, baby.
0: Oh, great answer! Great <laughs> yeah. answer. Undefeated in world wars.
1: Yes, that is the MVP of this by a mile. You got the English and the, the USA and the French all working together, which we may never see again. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so, this is like the Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, uh, Dennis Rodman of global conflicts. Yeah,
1: um, but then you know, more about the film itself. Of course, I've got to go with our boy, Hans Zimmer. Got um, Bringing the heat, as always. And then, as I said at the top, the DP, Hoyt Van Hoytema. This is Nolan's most gorgeous film. There are some awe-inspiring shots. Um, I think the scene of Tom Hardy standing in front of his plane...
0: Just stole one of my answers for a later question, but keep going.
1: uh, ...is, like, the shot of his career so far. Like, that's probably my favorite Nolan still yet. Um, Gorgeous film. Sounds great. Allied powers. Boom. Boom
0: that's how we do it. All right, the Jared Leto Award for the film's worst performance. I've noticed a trend in these discussions outside of our DCEU deep dive. We choose a lot of really good movies that don't necessarily have glaringly horrible performances. So for this one, again, one where I thought everyone does their job, even though there's really no characters, I'm going with the script supervisor. And I'm doing that Because in 2017, Nolan revealed after the movie came out that he originally planned to film Dunkirk without a script and he had to be talked out of it by his producing partner and wife, Emma Thompson. So I think that idea is readily apparent in the complete lack of like story elements and the fact that the film is built on narrative engineering rather than characters. And so like there still must have been a script supervisor that I'm sure did a great job but essentially got paid to sit around England for a few months with Christopher Nolan and a bunch of famous people.
1: Dude, that script thing is an unbelievable fact. What I don't understand what that means. Like the movie wasn't going to have words?
0: Dude, I don't I don't either. I um I went <laughs> back and re reread cuz I had written a story about it in 2017 when it came out. I think essentially he had a collection of amazing set pieces in mind. And then he was going to kind of loosely stitch together like on the day be like, hey, just just say the Germans are coming. <laughs> oh, okay, we got it. Next scene. Like, I think it was kind of going to be a, a very loose script yeah. with a lot of really cool action that was edited together. That, that's a film made in the editing room. I think that's a, an ex- expression in Hollywood.
1: Uh, so my Jared Leto Award for the film's worst performance, continuing my theme here, are the Nazis. Because <laughs> fuck the Nazis. They're ter- terrible... For- Terrible performance. Post
0: credit pod. You can quote us. Okay. Hashtag fuck the Nazis.
1: Yeah. Not only did they blow World War II. They blew, um, they
0: blew a 28-3 halftime yeah, lead. Yeah,
1: blew it because they got cocky and went too far east and they fucked themselves over. Um, but just the whole general point of their war was not great. So <laughs> I'm whenever, agree with you on that one. Whatever we, <laughs> whatever we record a podcast that includes yeah. the worst group of people to exist on Earth in the last 250 years, I'm gonna go with them.
0: <laughs> you know what? That's just a phenomenal back to back slam dunks for Eric Italiano in our awards and categories section. I just, how can you argue with any of those I'm just answers? I'm glad
1: you're here to give the fans some real content, because I'm just saying the dumbest things I can think
0: of. No, you're, say, you're dropping truth bombs, which is what Japan shouldn't have done because they lost World War II for the Axis powers. Oh, God. All right. On to our next category. The best performance by anyone except the lead actor. Uh, I think we can, we've firmly established that you can argue Dunkirk doesn't even have a lead. If we're going with one single person, it's probably Tom Hardy. So, in my opinion, that makes Mark Rylance, who provides a sense of civic duty and morality and kind of normal citizens going above and beyond in extreme situations. He gives that to the movie in a very heartfelt, authentic way. And he's also just a good actor who doesn't really turn in bad performances. There's no hiding from this, son. What is it you think you can do with that? On this thing? It's not just us. The call went out. We aren't the only ones to answer, you know. You don't even have guns. You have a gun? Yes, of course, a rifle 303. Did it help you against the dive bombers and the U-boats? You're an old fool. I'm not going back. I'm not going back. Turn it around. I'm not turning around.
1: Turn it around. So he was mine too. I actually just watched him this weekend. I, I checked out the screener for the trial of the Chicago 7. Cool. Have you seen it
0: yet, Brendan? Have not seen it yet.
1: Uh, th- this guy plays one note, right? This is, this is what he does in every film I've seen him in. <laughs> but man, does he play that note well. You That's know? fair.
0: Like, I think it he, defines a lot of actually modern, action, like, uh, not action, modern superstars. Like, I think Leo, the secret to his career is that every single role he plays is a guy slowly losing his mind over the course of the film. Every single role catch me if you can by the end he's like this deranged criminal uh you Idiot. know The departed he's you know he's in the most high press situation ever until he kind of cracks like Shudder every violent.
1: oh my god that is incredible
0: i've written like a, a very long piece on observer about how he, he really has mastered externalizing the internal dissent
1: wow check out all those big words here folks <laughs> um
0: we're good hype men to each other i think um
1: So, yeah, with Mark Rylance, he does that calm, cool, pragmatic, decent, except for the time he was playing a spy, which even then, he was still super decent. You're like, I'm rooting for this Cold War spy, I guess. Soviet, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, he's mine. Um, Check him out in in the trial of the Chicago 7. Um, The cast is all fantastic, but I do find that he stands out. He plays like the team's lawyer. Um,
0: He's and just he... a decent man. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Quiet decency, man. It never fails. Everyone yeah. can relate to that and be like, ah, that guy. He's the guy you want in your foxhole. Yeah, huge grandpa vibes. <laughs> yes, yes. Like very like paternal, like this guy's dressing up as Santa at Christmas for the family. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Now the pleasantly surprising cameo or casting. This is a movie with a ton of that guy faces of, of actors you know yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm actually what's up
1: no i'm saying yeah yeah yeah. because as uh, you said that i was thinking of the uh the blonde guy who gets shot down in a plane looks, I, looks familiar as hell but
0: yeah he's one he's one of those guys
1: yeah yeah But
0: yeah. I, I think i'm actually going with m- maybe the most recognizable face to a certain demographic and that's harry styles who I think does a really good job in what is essentially his big screen debut. Like, I, I, I remember everyone was freaking out because he cast this pop star, but, like, he does a good job of this young soldier just in over his head.
1: Now, it's not his fault that we know who he is. I do exactly. find I do find it odd in the sense that, like, what were we talking about uh, on the Interstellar pod where we were saying how it takes you out of the film? You remember that? Oh, Damon! Damon! Yeah, Damon! Yeah. Right, okay, that is this to me. Harry Styles, for as good as he is, him popping up, especially because it's a World War II movie, and this kid, despite the fact that he's been rolling around in the dirt all day, still looks beautiful. (laughs) So I do find it distracting, but yeah, he is solid. And I think he just signed on for a new movie, correct me if I'm wrong uh he
0: recently signed on there's rumors he's gonna be in a marvel movie eventually i i don't know good for
1: him awesome
0: but i, yeah, I think he's good in this. i've never been one like ed ed sheeran's cameo in game of thrones like that just doesn't bother me i just don't care just because that person's famous for something else it never really takes me out
1: yeah yeah um well but that's different because he was in one scene right this kid yeah. is in the movie
0: yeah he's getting uh-huh. shot
1: So for mine, and I need you to help me here. Is it Killian or Cillian?
0: It's Killian.
1: You're 100% sure.
0: Yeah, and I called him Cillian for like a decade.
1: Yeah, same here. Okay. Killian Murphy pops up about halfway through, as he tends to do in things. I feel like like I'm always seeing him pop up halfway through. He's a big like,
0: poof, I'm there kind (laughs) of guy.
1: And this guy, and the last time we talked about him is how we talked about Tom Hardy, stole his career in real time (laughs) you know what i mean like they're the same actor kind of he's so good in this he's He's a good actor he's like he you understand what he's going through and yet well no i don't understand what it was like to be in world war ii but i understand that he's going through some sort of ptsd and yet he's slimy enough that you don't like him yet he's vulnerable enough that you feel bad for him all at once right like he kills that kid and yet you still don't entirely blame him and you're still not like well shouldn't somebody throw him in jail
0: yeah i mean it was clearly unintentional but that doesn't he's take away from the tragedy. yeah year old kid i mean come on that that's actually one of my answers for for a later one because so,
1: he's mine anytime he pops up just like i was saying in uh in inception like when, you, when he's in a role, you don't need to worry about that role. That's going to be a good to great role. Um, yeah. And portraying not a, only someone with PTSD, but someone with PTSD before PTSD was even a
0: thing. It was called is, shell shock back then.
1: Yeah, is a tricky line to toe, and he does. Now the
0: next one our worst line and best line of dialogue because this movie is so sparse of dialogue. I just went with best line. Okay. Mine is the, the blind guy's like, well done, lads, well done. And the character named Alex is like, all we did is survive. And the blind man says, that's enough. That's enough. Wow. I think that perfectly synthesizes the very idea of the film. It's something that carries over into 1917 as we've discussed. And that is, the horror of war. There is an argument that I think holds merit that all war movies, whether it's the intention or not, do glorify war to a certain extent. And I agree with that. But I think when these visceral experiences are put to the screen so horrifically, it reminds us of how terrible that is. And it plants the seed that we should avoid these conflicts whenever possible. And I think this line holds a lot of meaning to me in an otherwise barren film in terms of thematic dialogue because this encapsulates everything surviving was enough
1: that is such a good call because i struggled to find one if you had to guess
0: how many 110 words... H- lines of dialogue if i had okay. to guess
1: well but oh okay okay
0: which wow. is not a lot but I, I, that's not i that's a guess i don't know if that's the number but like that's just what I'm, I thought.
1: I'm, I'm actually sure we could Google it. All.
0: This category will be more fun when we eventually do a Quentin Tarantino movie. That'll be like the optimal yeah. best and worst line of dialogue.
1: Yeah, so I can't find, sure. I, I, I can't find real quick, but yeah, if I had to guess total words spoken throughout the course of the film, I'd say S- under 750.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> a <fun. laughs> Just Now, for the real... Now for the rewind that real quick award in which one thing is worthy of a second look. It it was both hard and easy to come up with something in my mind, partly because of the rewatchability issues we've mentioned and partly because there's also so many kind of breathtaking set pieces in this film. I ultimately decided that the destroyer being torpedoed and the soldiers having to escape the sinking boat is one of the very best sequences in the film. I think that's kind of partially due to my irrational fear of drowning. Actually, that's a pretty fucking rational fear. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. And it's not, not like I don't yeah. get emotions. Like I, I do all the time, but I just think drowning is, is probably the second worst way to go behind. He said,
1: it, man. he said, I once told you it's like going home. It's acony.
0: (laughs) Acony. Exactly. So he got it. And I also think all of the aerial dogfights are are pretty immaculately constructed because that is not easy to pull off from a logistics standpoint.
1: Yeah. So I could not agree more. Those were mine exact too. If I wanted to boil it down a little bit more, it's in the uh, torpedo scene where, and this shot was in the trailer as well, where it's like flooding on an angle. Yeah. I don't even know how to describe it really, because it's such a unique perspective shot, but it's like the inside of the boat filling up, but for some reason, but because it's tipping over, it's on an angle, trippy, trippy stuff.
0: And So I actually got to interject real quick, because in my my research for this podcast, that exact scene that you're talking about, they had an IMAX camera in in the- um, in the vessel, but it sank or like filled up way quicker than they actually expected to the point where the water had gotten past the protective case and was kind of engulfing the film. So Christopher Nolan actually used like a trick from like the 1940s or some shit where if, if the film got wet, you had to keep it wet until it could be developed. So they actually constructed this like moist box or or something like that to send the film to be rendered or whatever it is that they do in the technical things. And they use that shot in the film, which I just think is this amazing technical achievement that is just really cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no doubting that when it comes to tricks of, of the trade, yeah. This dude has got them all right. You could see it, right? Because every time I see that scene, I think to myself, "How the fuck is this being filmed right now?" Because <laughs> it's such a bizarre angle, you know. Um, and then I would say, uh, "You say say the dogfight. I'm gonna zoom in a bit to the actual landing, where he runs out of gas and he's coasting, and the soldiers are applauding, and the sun is setting." But his plane is completely silent, just floating through the air across this gorgeous landscape. Beautiful.
0: That's a really, really gorgeous shot. And just, you know, we're landing the movie, too. We're on the last few minutes. So it's kind of this beautiful recap, I guess, of sorts. Now, the next one, put this in the Museum Award. This is one you came up with, Eric. Now, for me, I went with the editing because it is essentially a story within a story. We have agreed that the cracks begin to show upon further rewatches, and I do think that's true, but that doesn't mean that this gimmick isn't still enthralling in bits and eliciting the intended emotional reaction, which is basically Xanax-inducing panic attacks.
1: (laughs) That's a good one. Mine is the, um, it's the first shot. Because it just kind of blows your mind. It's of these four British soldiers, and they're walking through the streets of Dunkirk, and like pamphlets are being rained down above them from the Germans saying, like, "We've got you surrounded." And I think that that sort of sets the tone for the entire film, And I just struck after that. And just that uniqueness of like, they open the movie, right? There's no fade in from black. There's no, uh, it's just, you're there. And yeah. it's just such a bizarre image. A, empty streets. That That's always a weird thing, right? B, it's completely quiet. C, it's the middle of the daytime. And D, there are pieces of paper falling as if it were rain. Um, And I just think if you were to show somebody that photo, they'd be like, that's Dunkirk.
0: Yeah. It's recognizable, it immediately sets the tone. It's it's terrifying in this completely unterrifying way cuz nothing right then in that second is an immediate threat, but you know the threat is looming. Yeah. It's mental, it's mental tension pressing down on you from the very first moment that the film begins and says shit is going down.
1: Yeah. The clock starts the second the film starts. Yep. The walls begin to close in immediately. And they literally tell you in that scene with those falling pamphlets.
0: So with establishing the conflict and the stakes immediately, that sets up our next award, which is the best hero moment. Now you already spoke about it, but mine is the end as Tom Hardy looks over his burning plane and is taken prisoner by German soldiers. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. His sacrifice helps to rescue 300,000 Allied troops. And it is a powerful image and a fitting conclusion to what, what may be, you know, one of the only mini arcs for a character in the entire movie.
1: Oh, well, what's nice is not only do you get the beautiful thematic payoff and cinematic visuals, but you also in the background have the reading of the Churchill speech. You've got the Hans Zimmer score. So there's a lot coming at you in this one scene. Two
0: icons. To
1: really underline the sacrifice that not only this one guy put in, but that they all did. So I, of course, had that one as well. Now, adding on to that, something I hadn't caught until this viewing is that when George is, you know, on his last breath, right, and he's talking to his friend, he's explaining how he would tell his teachers how he wanted to, like, be in the paper for doing something. And I had never realized that he said that. And then his friend is the one who brings his photo and story to the paper who then write about him i had never picked up on that so i thought that that was that is all going down as the churchill speech is being read as harry styles is being brought home on a train as tom hardy's plane is coming down all of this is going on at once and it all works an absolute home run that is the last 10 minutes to me are the best part of the entire movie
0: and i really like what his friend did because his friend obviously did something really heroic. But I think what we're talking about in terms of, sorry, reset one, two, three. I love that part because his friend obviously does something very heroic in helping with the evacuation. But in bringing that story to the newspaper and kind of fulfilling his his friend's dying wish, it shows you that you don't have to be a soldier to be a hero. You don't have to be Somebody gunning down enemies to to be a real man. You know what right. I mean? That's yeah. what that's what being an, a, a a hero and a good person and a man is about. This that moral fiber that compels you to do these these things that make us human,
1: really. And in fact, Barry Keogh, the kid who plays George, just got cast in an MCU film. I first... he's going to make
0: an appearance in Eternals. Eternals,
1: okay. Nice little
0: go. run for him, man. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, he's a young guy. So wild-looking face, but. Good kid.
0: <laughs> I like that we've traversed both the pros and cons of Dunkirk. So these next two questions will really hone in on that. Number one, what is the worst thing you can say about this movie?
1: I want you to go first because mine is gonna be explained in a next category.
0: Okay, so my answer is that it is a needlessly convoluted puzzle piece that sacrifices characterization in attempt by the director to show off his ability to tell a non-linear narrative. Oh. Just, I'm keeping it to, to, to the point, because that is, that is I think, its it's greatest flaw.
1: So mine is, and this is the first time that I've had this, when we skip down to to if you catch this on cable, are you going to watch? Mine is no. And I don't think I've said no about a single film that we've talked about on this podcast yet, um, because we've talked about films that we like... Oh no! I think
0: you Sorry. said no about Justice League.
1: Yes. just So, okay, that is a fucking indictment right there. If you're <laughs> being used in the same sentence as Justice League, that, that's not good. Now, look. Dunkirk, and now I, I will lead into what's the best thing I, I could say. Dunkirk is a phenomenal film. Just like we said about Inception. Nolan at his worst is still better than 99% of guys at their best. And it's not even close. But um, it's his most beautifully shot film. It's his most grown-up film. It's maybe his most important film. I don't know I think how many make that case.. For sure. yeah, I don't know how many people, and this is probably an indictment of our education system. I had not heard of Dunkirk until this and uh, the Churchill film starring uh, Old: The Darkest Hour. <laughs> the Darkest Hour. I had never heard of this until these films. Um, I
0: hadn't either, so don't feel too bad.
1: Right, so it's important, it's well-made, it's beautiful, but it's ultimately, and you use the best word for it, it's grating. Um, I find it wears you down. It's not an enjoyable watch. It's not something that I'm like, Dunkirk is on. Hell yeah, let's fire up Dunkirk. I watched it for this podcast, and I cannot tell you when I will ever watch again.
0: So of all the movies that we've covered, this is probably the movie I've seen the least in terms of rewatches. This is probably my third time ever rewatching it, and the other ones have definitely surpassed that. So I understand what you mean. In terms of my most positive thing I can say about Dunkirk, I would say Christopher Nolan is in full command of his craft here in a perception-altering nosedive into this kind of unbridled terror that, that is mankind. And I think that's extremely important to his filmography. I think it's this visceral experience that stands apart from all other films, which is why even after exploring all the negatives today, I still think it's the most memorable film of 2017. And this isn't positive at all, but it's just another reminder from yet another war movie is that if I was in a war movie, I'd absolutely be the guy who'd be like, when I get back home, you know i I'm gonna start me a a shop. I, it's my little dream on the hill, and I'd sniper bullet. like I would be the first guy to die in a war movie, guaranteed. and probably a real war as well. Oh no, that's that goes without saying. like I, I actually, maybe I wouldn't because I would probably escape to Canada. Uh, <laughs> so well. now you've already answered it a little bit, but our next question is, if you catch this movie on cable, are you watching? To me, it depends where the movie is at, because uh, Barry Keegan, uh, when he's when he's accidentally killed by Killian Murphy, that is such a genuinely horrifying event to me because it's such an innocent and unintentional casualty of war that it was really hard for me to watch. So if it's around that part, I'm probably not going to watch it. If we've already passed that part in the movie, yeah, I may, I may stick around for, for some serious experiences. That's
1: fair, yeah. Mine is a firm no here. Firm no.
0: Man, this injustice League. We got to keep a running tab of which ones um, we're not rewatching. Yeah. All right, now before we go, Eric, is there any cool stuff you think that's worth mentioning that fans would be excited to learn?
1: Tune into the background sound, and there's a constant ticking. It's like a. It's. It says here it was from his own stopwatch, and he want, and he says he wanted to give the film a sort of rhythm and beat.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. I got two here that I just thought were, you know, interesting factoids. Number one, uh, Christopher Nolan, you know, in in interviewing people involved in the real life Dunkirk, kind of learned how young and inexperienced the soldiers really were across the spectrum. So because of that, he also wanted wanted to cast young and unknown actors for that beach setting to really reflect that kind of callowness in boots on the ground, which works well, I think, with that cast. And number two, in the end credits, it states that 12 of the original little ships that participated in the Dunkirk evacuation appear in the movie, reenacting their presence in 1940. And I just thought that was really cool. That's
1: very cool. I did not know that.
0: There's something about enduring legacy and homage to the past that, that is just... It's heartwarming, I guess, for, for an otherwise really, really dark and grim film.
1: And I will say, the yacht that Mark Rylance has, even for, what, 1940? is a nice little boat he's got there. Nice piece of equipment he's working with. Yeah, yeah. I would take that today. I would take that today. All
0: right, well, that is it from us. If you guys want more, be sure to follow Post Cred Pod on Twitter.
1: We are We're- 15 away from 1,000. A, a
0: Get us there, folks.
1: Come on, people. Let's go.
0: Retweet, follow, like. And uh, if you've liked our Christopher Nolan deep dive, we're going to wrap up soon with Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Rises in one pod. That'll be it from us, from Nolan. I'm sure we'll circle back around in the near future for some reason, but uh, I'm going to miss this kind of segment cuz this was fun these 7 episodes or so.
1: I think that my biggest takeaway here is how truly impactful this guy has been on on films during my lifetime and therefore my life. I write about sure. film. It is my entire job is based around film.
0: I think he's and, really helped to shape our preferences too. Yeah,
1: for sure. So uh, yeah, my biggest takeaway is that his imprint on my taste is massive. Absolutely massive. Yeah. And it's been a blast to go back and watch. I think, you know, this guy's still, what, in his mid-50s? or early he's in his 50s. 40s. In his 40s even, which is kind of blows my mind a little bit. Um, you know, he's still got a, a way to go. When it's all said and done.
0: He's 50.
1: 50. So he's still got at least 20 years.
0: I mean, dude, Clint Eastwood's 90 and just just lined up his next film at Warner I know, Brothers. I, know, like... I mean, come on. <laughs> no, but I'm saying if no one wants to, he can just. No, I know, I know,
1: I know. But so, you know, when it's all said and done, at this stage, there is no telling how high his name will rise when when it comes to the all time greats. I am the father.
0: I'm going to make him an offer again. My name is
1: Maximus Decimus Meridius.